Welcome back, listeners. This is the third episode of Branch 251, the podcast about the world's first criminal trial dealing with accusations of atrocity crimes by Syrian officials. My name is Fritz Streif. And I'm Karam Somali. So, Karam, what is this episode going to be all about? There was still no court this week. And last time we talked a lot about the stories that survivors told us, the people who were tortured in Branch 251. Mm -hmm. And our listeners have an impression now of what went on in that prison in Branch 251 and the kind of terrible stuff that is still happening there at this very moment and in other branches of the Syrian torture apparatus. Right, yeah. And so today we will look at how these terrible stories of crimes actually get transformed into a legal case, like the one we are seeing in Copland's now. I went to see Syrian human rights lawyer Anwar Albuni in his office in Berlin this week. Uh, he used to be a prominent human rights lawyer in Syria for decades before fleeing in 2014. And he's also a victim himself and a survivor branch 251. Now he's central to much of the case building that is happening in Germany and Europe. And it wasn't easy to get to talk to him, huh, you said? Yeah, yeah. This man is uh, super busy. He's working day and night on this case. And a lot of people are interested in his personal story in relation to the case and branch 251 right now. Right. Yeah, let's start from the beginning. Just note, listeners, Karam and Anwar had their conversation in their mother tongue Arabic, so there will be a voiceover in English. I am Anwar Abuni. I was born in Syria, in Hama, actually, in 1959. I'm from a family that's truly active in politics, my brothers especially. That's the reason we were arrested. And how many brothers? How many arrests? Well, the first arrest in my family was in 1977. It was my oldest brother. And then in 1978, my other two brothers and my sister were also detained. Around those days, I was also detained at Branch 251 for eight days. And I believe that was your first interaction with Branch 251. Yes, and that's why I decided to become a lawyer, not only for my brothers, I also had friends who were detained. I decided to become a lawyer to defend the people that were detained and thrown in jails without trials or accusations, just because they had political opinion that doesn't suit the Syrian state or the regime, to be precise. And did you get the chance to work on your brother's case? Yes, I actually submitted the defense statement for my brothers, and I remember back in the day, there weren't any computers, and we had to type on a typing machine. Anwar Albuni studied law in Damascus and used the limited body of rights of defendants and prisoners that the Syrian legislation offered at the time as best as he could. He went on to spend years defending prisoners of conscience for free, out of a belief in human rights and justice. And to make ends meet, he worked for paying clients doing regular cases in criminal and civil law. And all that time, he would go to see his brothers in jail as often as he could. And they remained detained in prison for almost 15 years. And fast forward to 2006, Anwar al has really made a name for himself as a human rights lawyer in Syria. But the intelligence services had been following his activity all along. And eventually, he had to pay a high price. Well, in 2006... The European Commission for Human Rights funded a center for training human rights activists, and I was the director of that center. Without permission or license from the regime, hmm. 
At the opening, many media outlets came. It struck the regime that 12 ambassadors attended in person. Okay, so that was Damascus in 2006, five years before the uprising, 14 years ago now. And Anwar al-Buni was almost sort of center and stage of the human rights movement in Syria, with international support from embassies and donors and attention from international media outlets. And that rubbed the government the wrong way. Right, yeah. You could say that it was not before long, actually, that he was arrested again. And this time, threats not only for eight days. Mm-hmm. In fact, I was going to my car to leave for the office at six in the evening. A white car was driving fast towards me and stopped near me. Two people held me and threw me in the back seat where you put your feet and they sat over me. They blindfolded me and the car drove away. I started screaming, asking, what is this? What did I do? One man answered, you don't know what you did? You are a killer. You are a rapist. And after he was taken into detention, he had to appear in court the next morning, and that is when he identifies the man who arrested him the day before. When we entered the court, I saw the man next to me. He was the head of the patrol. The police at the court knew me. I dealt with them daily. I asked the officer, who brought me here? He said it was Anwar from the state security branch. So, on that day in 2006, Anwar al-Buni was kidnapped and arrested in front of his house and slapped in his face on the way to prison. And the man who slapped him is the same man that is now accused in Koblenz, Anwar R. So how long did he have to stay in prison this time around? Five years in total, from 2006 until 2011. And during that time in prison, Anwar al-Buni actually received the Human Rights Award from the German Association of Judges. And he obviously couldn't attend the award ceremony as he was in prison in Damascus, but one of his brothers went in his name. Yeah. And then he was released just when the uprising was happening, huh? Right, yeah, in 2011, a few months after the uprising started. And you might think that after spending five years in jail, he would be intimidated enough to stop his work as a human rights lawyer. Yeah. But actually, he continued. And he started defending and representing people who were involved in the uprising, uh, political demonstrators and even people who were um, detained at Branch 251. But by 2014, many of his colleagues had been arrested and disappeared. The whole situation Fritz got a lot worse and being arrested was not the same as before. Mm-hmm. By 2014, many of his colleagues had been arrested and disappeared. The whole situation got a lot worse. You know, prisons are overcrowded and uh, it was hard to locate uh, where someone is being detained. Mm-hmm. And of course, the torture on all the torture stories and uh, fo- leaked photos of torture. So, yeah, you don't want to risk that. He got word that there was an arrest warrant out for him. So he decided to leave Syria and eventually ended up in Germany. And that is where he lives and works today and still does what he can to work for human rights, for 
Syrians from a distance now from Berlin. And he also really tries to push for accountability for these crimes, these terrible crimes committed in Syria. Right. And he's been really very active in his capacity of a Syrian lawyer in Germany. He has a big network here. So he connects organizations and authorities investigating human rights abuses with victims and witnesses. And then one day, about eight years after Anwar R. arrested him and slapped him in the face, he saw him again. Yep. I thought I knew this guy. His face didn't look strange. And he seemed like he knew me. He looked back. I told my wife, I think I know him. That's the day he recognized Anwar R. at the refugee center here in Berlin. And then Anwar Albuni saw Anwar R. again in a store when he went to buy some furniture. And he started talking to his friends about him. And after a few days, he says he was sure he had seen the guy that arrested him all those years ago, thousands of kilometers away from Damascus in his new home in Berlin. He saw the man who ran Branch 251. Yeah, so what are the chances, huh? Mm. So when the police asked him whether he knew Anwar R, of course he had a lot more to tell them. His reputation is that he was vicious. He was one of the officers who tortured people the most. If a detainee challenged him or gave an answer that annoyed him, he would personally beat them. I gave my testimony at the general prosecutor's office. He asked me if we know victims from Branch 251. I said, of course. I started looking to contact victims that I knew made it to Europe. I know those victims because I represented them when they were detained. I know they were at Branch 251 and I defended them after they were sent to court. Like Faraz Fayyad, he was at Branch 251. And how did you know the victims, the survivors who could be witnesses in this trial? It wasn't difficult. I know them, and I had already defended them. I just needed to find ways to contact them, those who made it to Europe. No one hesitated to testify. The general prosecutor built the case and got enough witnesses to testify and accordingly issued an arrest warrant for him in 2019. But how could you be sure that they were at Branch 251? I know that they were at Branch 251. Also, the interrogator takes the details of the room. When you go to the toilet, where do you go? Left? Right? Where are the toilets? How many steps do you ascend? Or descend? And such details that you wouldn't know if you weren't at this branch. And he went on to describe the meticulous process of questioning victims and going through their accounts over and over again, just to make sure that they would be valuable witnesses. Anwar Bunni has helped many of the witnesses in this process. Yeah, he really is an important factor in getting this case to trial also specifically. And 
he's so personally involved and invested, of course, uh, because he's a victim himself. He, he's even a direct victim of the main accused of Anwar R. But still, Anwar Albuni says this case is not about personal revenge. It's about justice, he says. Yeah, right. And for him, being able to play this part in a legal procedure like this, after all these decades of uh, fighting for human rights for Syrians, it really means a lot to him. Mm-hmm. And I recall towards the end of our conversation, we talked about him testifying at the prosecutor's office. He actually testified for 15 hours over two days. And at the end, Anwar remembered with passion that one prosecutor made the following remark to the other prosecutor. He answered him saying, didn't you know that Anwar spent all of his life waiting for this moment to give his testimony? That was the Syrian human rights lawyer Anwar Albuni in his office in Berlin where Karam went to see him. And thank you very much for your contribution to our podcast, Anwar. We really appreciate it. Okay, so we also had some questions coming in this past week from listeners. Uh, who's been in touch with us, Fritz? Yeah, we had a couple, um, including from Julie from Australia and Lawrence from the Netherlands. Thank you uh, both guys for listening and for your questions. Mm-hmm. And Julie, um, she asked what, if any, cooperation Germany is getting from Syria in prosecuting this case. Has Germany asked for any formal cooperation? And if so, what response did they get? That's an excellent lawyer question, so I'll take that one. <laughs> you go for it. <laughs> I, uh, I Obviously, I cannot be sure. Uh, but from everything we know, uh, this is highly unlikely, and we haven't seen anything official uh, like this. You could probably say that it's, it's not just unlikely, but impossible. Germany mm-hmm. and Syria broke off diplomatic relations in 2012, and mutual legal assistance like that usually takes place in those diplomatic spheres, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it would also just be paradoxical. I mean, in a way, even though this case is against two individual accused, that's what this case is about. Let's not forget that. The trial is against two individuals. But mm-hmm. obviously, it is also about the wider, the bigger Syrian torture apparatus. And that context will also play a big part in in, in this trial. Right. And maybe you saw when the Syrian president Assad was asked about the Branch 251 trial in Koblenz. Uh, he was being interviewed by uh, Russia Today, I believe. He just flatly denied that, tor- that torture even exists in Syria. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So all that makes any type of uh, cooperation very unlikely. All right. And um, Lawrence wondered, after listening to last episode and the descriptions of the inside of Branch 251 and what detainees have to go through there, we know what he had a had as a role as far as the prosecution is concerned. Uh, he yeah. round, he rounded up and arrested demonstrators and bust them to the branch. But what about Anwar R? Where does he fit into the journey into the building of Branch 251 that we made last episode? Well, um, that's from what we know from survivors, Anwar R was the boss. You know, he ran the place. Mm-hmm. Uh, the prosecutor also said that in his opening statement, he ran the place, full stop. And the accusation is clear. Anwar R directed the torture at Branch 251. So survivors also have told us that he had an office on the first floor and would interrogate prominent activists himself often, uh, and also sometimes beating them with uh, his own hands. One survivor actually recalled an inmate telling him that his mother came to try to beg Anwar R to release her son. He brought her son to his office and tortured him in her presence. So yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. So that is how Anwar Arf 
himself fits into the stories we heard and told in the last episode and mm -hmm. it kind of completes the picture in a way right yeah thanks again for your questions julie and lawrence and again if anyone else has any questions about the trial about the case about the investigation um, then do send them over and we'll try to answer as many as we can thank you guys and uh, now we're coming towards the end of uh, our third episode and towards the end of court recess Yes, next week there will be court again. So what can we expect, Fritz? And I'm hearing it's supposed to be a big moment, huh? Well, there is a chance that it could get pretty exciting. Um, Anwar R's lawyer announced at the beginning of the trial that his client would soon make a statement or he would read a statement on uh, behalf of his client. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't happened yet. So will it next week? That's what we're hearing, and that's what everybody is kind of expecting. Um, and if he does, we could learn quite some interesting things um, about the defense strategy. You know, will the defense contest all charges, or maybe even um, offer some type of cooperation with the court? Uh, what kind of counter evidence is the defense planning uh, to bring? Um, what about the other defendant? Uh, will he also at some point make a statement? All those questions might at least partially be answered next week. So it'll be exciting to follow. Yeah, yeah. So that's the thing to watch out for next week when the court is back in session. And we will be there for you, listeners, and update you right from the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And until then, thank you for listening. And uh, if you like this podcast, do subscribe so that the episodes come to you automatically every week and tell your friends and colleagues spread the word. Mm -hmm. You can support this podcast by following the link in the show notes or clicking on the support this podcast button on our website. A special thank you to those who have already been so generous. We really appreciate it. Yes, thank you very much. Branch 251 is produced and hosted by the two of us. The voiceover you heard today came from David Taffet, and we got very valuable production feedback from Marte von Dormale again. I'm Fritz Streif. And I'm Karam Shomali. See you next time on Branch 251. See you then. <laughs>